Come on. The hypocrisy is stunning. You can't help a family making 75 grand a year, but you can help a millionaire and you have your debt forgiven. I believe the court's decision to strike down my student debt relief program as a mistake was wrong. One of the most one of the most regressive Supreme Court terms in history comes to an ignominious end with blows to President Biden's student debt plan, LGBTQ protections and affirmative action. Also tonight, Moms for Liberty was designated an extremist group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. So it's no surprise that Republican presidential candidates, including Ron DeSantis, DeSantis, however he pronounces it, are right at home at their convention. But we begin tonight with the Supreme Court on the final day of their term, delivering a devastating one-two punch to the American people. Today, the six conservative justices ruled in favor of an evangelical Christian web designer who refused to make websites for same-sex weddings, a major setback to LGBTQ rights and protections. They also struck down President Biden's plan to forgive ten dollars to $20,000 in student loan debt for more than 40 million Americans. Now, not only do these decisions, along with yesterday's decision ending affirmative action, ensure direct harm to the most vulnerable communities in our country, it also further proves what we already know to be true about the Supreme Court, that the six conservative justices have an ideological aversion to everyone except for right-wing Christians and the super-rich. Those two groups need only show up at the court, and they will get whatever they want. I mean, who else is going to take the justices on fancy yachts and private jets and vote Republicans so they can get even more goodies? Everyone else, on the other hand, gets nothing. Nada. You're on your own, kid. And the uber-rich and conservative Christians know this, which is why all of these billionaire-dollar-funded right-wing groups are hunting for cases that fit their agenda and rushing them before the court. Because they know that they will win, even if those cases don't directly involve them at all. Both of the affirmative action cases were brought by a group called Students for Fair Admissions, founded by Edward Blum, who is, surprise, surprise, not a student. He's a 71-year-old conservative activist who has made it his life's mission to put an end to race-conscious admissions policies. In the case of the wedding website, the plaintiff, Lori Smith, never even had a gay couple ask her for service. The whole case was based off of a hypothetical. She was simply a website designer who wanted to make wedding websites someday, but didn't want to have to do it for gay couples if they asked, which apparently they did not. And in the case of student loan forgiveness, the court ruled in favor of six red states, yes, states, not actual students, who said that the president has overstepped his authority to forgive some of the loans for those making less than $125,000 a year. Funny how you didn't hear these complaints when the airlines and banks got a big old government bailout, or when tons of big businesses, including some owned by members of Congress, had their PPP loans, in some cases millions of dollars of them, forgiven during the pandemic. All right, those policies helped out the rich and the super rich, so they're fine. But what these justices are saying is, basically, you don't actually need to suffer any harm in whatever case you bring. You just have to be the right kind of person with the right religious and political beliefs that fit with our ideology, and we will find a way to make it happen. And if we can't find a way in the Constitution, we'll just make it up. And by doing so, they are literally stripping away the rights and opportunities of generations of Americans. As Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote in her dissent, this court stands in the way and rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress, which has been the Republican Party's goal all along. 
Ever since Barack Obama became president, it has been the right's mission to undo all the progress we've made as a country. That is what they're talking about when they say, make America great again. What they really mean is make America 1910 again. And the only way to do that is by stuffing the Supreme Court with enough uber conservatives who will blindly hand down rulings that propel the country backwards to the early 20th century, taking away women's rights over their own bodies and the rights of LGBTQ people and people of color to just live equally. And that is what they have done. With the bang of a gavel, those six unelected justices have wiped out decades and decades of progress just because they can. And don't think for a second that they're going to stop there. Joining me now is Christina Greer, Associate Professor of Political Science at Fordham University and Political Analyst for The Griot, and Ellie Mistal, Justice Correspondent for The Nation. His newest piece about today's decision is aptly titled, The Supreme Court Just Told Student Debtors to Just Go to Hell. Thank you both for being here. And uh, Ellie, I, I, I begged you to come back. I know you worked yesterday and we're on our A block yesterday, but I wanted to hear more from you. So uh, thank you for coming back for a second round of this. You know, my unified theory of the court is that essentially they only believe two classes of people deserve the protections of the Constitution, white, conservative Christians and billionaires. Disabuse me of this notion if you can. <laughs> no, I mean, I would add like open bigots. They think that those people oh, yeah. should have rights too. But other than those three categories, that's pretty much it. And you see it in today's entirely politicized decisions. I think you've done a good job of explaining kind of the the 30,000 foot level hypocrisy of these cases. But when you get into the weeds, they just get worse, right? This is a court that claims to, to, to be originalist, that claims to be textualist, right? In the HEROES Act, the act that Biden used to have the student debt relief program, they say the Heroes Act says explicitly that the Secretary of Education can waive or modify <laughs> student debt, which is what Biden did. But Roberts basically says, no, not that way, and completely overturns the Biden policy. The other hypocrisy that you really see is that if you look at Roberts's other huge um, national emergency executive power decision, that's the Muslim ban, folks. That's Trump v. Hawaii. And what did Roberts say there? Oh, if the president wants to ban people based on their religion, that's okay. But if the president wants to help people and give them $10,000, that's not okay. So that really, I think, highlights what you're talking about, Joy, that their decisions are not motivated by law or facts or logic or reason. They're motivated based on who wins. And as long as the rich people and the bigots are winning, then that's the way the court's going to go. You know, and, and, and just to say, to say with you just for a moment, Ellie, I mean, I, you know, again, read through, it's very lengthy. They write a lot of words to say not a lot of legal theory, right? To just say, you know, we, we, we want this result. We're getting there. And here's the way we're going to get there. In Tho Clarence Thomas's concurrence in the affirmative action decision. First of all, he cites Plessy a lot. And I thought Plessy was like verboten, like nobody wants to talk about Plessy versus Ferguson. He sure does. And in one point, make this make sense for me, please. Uh, you're a lawyer. In his concurrence, he claims that the Freedmen's Bureau Act, which created the Freedmen's Bureau, you know, that was supposed to rematriculate former enslaved people, who all of whom, 100 percent of whom were black, back into society. He said, oh, that was a colorblind statute. How could the Freedmen's Bureau, Ellie Mastal, be a colorblind statue? Make that make sense. It's, it's colorblind if you're like Clarence Thomas and your whole ideological, ideological perspective involves gouging out your own eyes. Like that, and that's what's <laughs> and that's what Thomas is. Like he is such a mutilated version of 
a black justice, that he is able to make these proclamations that, that just fly in the face of law and facts, right? One of the other things that you really realize when you when you read through his concurrence is just how angry he is at Katanji Brown Jackson for having the mm-hmm. temerity to be another black person on the Supreme Court. He apparently thought that he got to be the only one. He thought that he had pulled up the ladder for everybody else, right? And so he's really like, it's. he basically throws a tantrum at Jackson. And why? Because Jackson is making the actual originalist argument in the affirmative action case. She is the one pointing out that the 14th, 14th Amendment was done explicitly to have for for racial restorative policies like affirmative action, which, as I said yesterday, the first time that that happened in this country was during Reconstruction. So this is the history that Clarence Thomas ignores, and that's why he's so and that's why he's so fabulous about all of the stuff that's in his concurrence. He just he's just like plucked out his own eyes, and he doesn't want to see anything that Miss Jenny tells him he shouldn't be able to see. That's where he is in his headspace right now. Uh, let, let me bring you in, Christina, because it, it is very mind-blowing. But uh, let's let's talk about the cases uh, that came down today, because we kind of all had this feeling, I think all of us did, uh, that are on this panel, that they were doing like the one case where they weren't going to literally throw out elections entirely and say that states could just decide who the electors were. That was sort of like the kind of dodge to make you not, you know, remember what they were going to do next. And now they did what we expected them to do. But this... The way that the right is spinning it is they're doing the usual thing of saying, no, 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 these guys just believe in what MLK said. They believe in Dr. King. Here's Sarah Huckabee Sanders. As Martin Luther King said, people should be judged in the content of character. They always say the same thing. This is what MLK actually wrote about affirmative action. I feel this is an important education for those who hear Dr. King misquoted. The vast majority of civil rights leaders, uh, this is the quote, uh, favored affirmative action. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, a society that has done something special against the Negro for hundreds of years must now do something special for him for him. But his goals went beyond that. His policy uh, goals were to not just alter the racial composition of the elite, but also change everything about the economy in ways that today Republicans would call socialist. Your thoughts on this misuse of Dr. King to explain what's being done to people of color and other minorities? Yeah, Joy, it's also exhausting. You know, I'm, I'm leaning on my grandmother's adage of the only time you should be surprised is when you're surprised. We've seen time and time again, Republicans and conservatives constantly cherry pick the words of Dr. King to hide behind their own racism and white supremacy. So, yes, this content of their character, you know, I don't want to judge someone by their skin color. Republicans pull that out every single time they systematically take away people's rights. And it's like, well, Dr. King wouldn't have wanted it. It's like, well, first things first, Dr. King was assassinated. And when he was assassinated, he was known as a a domestic terrorist, essentially, in your eyes. So let's not hide behind a few sentences that you all want to use every time you take away rights and freedoms from the vast majority of Americans, specifically and explicitly black Americans. So no one has read the length of Dr. King's speeches on on the right. No one has really dissected what he said, because if they did, they'd read that full quote that you just read and know that their their cherry picked quote doesn't hold up. (laughs) And and very quickly, and I'm going to let both of you comment on this, but I'm going to start with you, Christina. What the Supreme Court has essentially said is that the only group you can that cannot be discriminated against or even perceive itself to be discriminated against are white people. But you can discriminate against gay people as long as you say that you're an artist. 
and you're sensitive about your art. <laughs> you know, if you say I'm an artist, but that that opens a lot of doors. So what they're saying is that they're the only protected class are white people who want to get into Harvard and rich people. But you can discriminate against everyone else. Native Americans who want water, people who have the death facing the death penalty. Everybody else is fair game. Make that make sense. It does make sense, Joy, but it brings up a much larger question is, can anyone ever be a full citizen in this country if they're not white men specifically? Um, and no. as black people really question and really think about as we move into the 4th of July, you know, we aren't full citizens. We never have been. And what what will it take for us to ever be fully included in this country, especially in a moment where we have a Republican Congress and essentially a conservative right wing court that's being bought by billionaires systemically taking our rights away, specifically and because Ellie we're black. And, and the thing is, is that what you what, what it feels to me is that the court has set aside the Constitution now and they are essentially saying we don't like the 20th and 21st centuries and we have the power to rid ourselves of it. And we're just going to do it because I don't know if when you read these rulings, you see any semblance of you know, respect for precedent or some constitutional firmament other than in the dissents. All I see are a bunch of Rush Limbaugh listeners who are like, we're going to make Rush's world come true. No, the court is in full YOLO mo mode, and they have been <laughs> since the moment Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. That's when they knew they had enough, they had one vote to spare for their kind of worst fever dreams, right? The point that you're making about the 14th Amendment is so important. What the court has said is that the 14th Amendment can does not allow for uh, race-conscious admissions, but does allow for any dime store bigot to refuse to serve members of the LGBTQ community, and it's not going to stop there. Because this argument that the court makes in the 303 creative case, that as long as you have a deeply held religious belief that you can uh, deny services to other people, you know where that's coming next, right? Because the next time I go into a store, I'm going to say, make me a sandwich. And the sandwich is going to say, actually, no, I'm a sandwich artist. And I don't have to make <laughs> you anything, right? The next time I go for swimming lessons, like, actually, no, swimming is my art and Jesus doesn't want you to swim. Like, that's what's coming next. So the idea that this is just a small case about gay marriage. No, no, no. What Neil Gorsuch and the conservatives have done in that case is really bring us back to a Plessy v. Ferguson standard uh, in terms of public accommodations laws. And to say that everyone except white Christians and billionaires have no rights that anyone is bound to respect. That actually does sum up this court pretty well. Christina Greer, Ellie Mistal, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, how conservatives on the Supreme Court have clumsily danced around the once all-important issue of standing in cases before the court. The Readout continues after this. are saying like, oh, I paid off mine, why can't you pay off yours? Because the people who already paid off theirs don't realize how expensive it's gotten. Did you apply for the forgiveness? Did you tell yeah, I, I made sure all my siblings, everybody I knew went to school to apply for it. So yeah, we all did. But like I said, to strike it down, it's like, all right, cool. I, I did know that they had like a, um, it was in court or something mm -hmm. like that. But to hear the final outcome, it's like, wow, okay. Just a few of the millions of Americans will be harmed by today's malicious Supreme Court rulings. In the 6-3 decision to kill President Biden's student debt relief plan, the court sided with the six states challenging it. The justices ruled that one state, Missouri, had standing to bring the case. Why? According to Chief Justice John Roberts, a quasi-government student loan servicer would lose revenue, causing a direct injury to the state.
But the student loan servicer, cited 25 times by Roberts in his ruling, did not participate in the case. Missouri's former attorney general and current Senator Eric Schmidt went shopping for an entity to file his lawsuit, and the company didn't want to be involved. The court's other major decision today ruled in favor of bigotry and intolerance. The same six-justice majority said an evangelical Colorado web designer can refuse service to LGBTQ couples under First Amendment protections. In her dissent, Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote, The immediate symbolic effect of the decision is to mark gays and lesbians for second-class status. The opinion of the court is, quite literally, a notice that reads, Some services may be denied to same-sex couples. I'll bring you reaction from the LGBTQ couple denied by the designer. Well, I mean, I would, but I can't because they don't exist. She was never approached by any couple. It's a manufactured case. The designer, Lori Smith, was represented by the Alliance Defending Freedom, a self-proclaimed conservative legal army that is also behind the lawsuit to make the abortion drug, if a illegal nationwide. And despite never designing a wedding website for or alleging any legal injury at all, the ADF took up her case to challenge Colorado's anti-discrimination law, just because they could. Join me now is Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley of Massachusetts and Kelly Robinson, president of the Human Rights Campaign. And I want to start with you, Representative Pressley, and talk about the PPP loans. Well, not the PPP loans. Sorry, those are okay. I forgot. They're, they're allowed to get uh, to get their debt relief um, enacted. Um, talk about the actual injury that we're going to see based on the fact that the court has decided that even though the statute said that the Department of Education could modify these loans. Apparently, they can't. Well, uh, more of the same, more harm from this far-right extremist imbalanced Supreme Court. You know, they have been enlisted as co-conspirators in this extremist agenda from state legislatures to the lower courts all the way to the Supreme Court. Joy, if they were a caucus in Congress, they would be called the forced birth, don't say gay, bootstrapper, anti-Black caucus. And they are all but obliterating uh, any ladders to social and economic mobility. Yesterday's uh, ruling gutting affirmative action and this decision uh, today uh, is uh, devastating and it will be deeply consequential. Uh, especially for the most marginalized. There are some 43 million people who are in dire need of this life-changing relief. Uh, educators who took on this debt because they want to teach our babies and they can't afford to raise their own children and meet the monthly minimums. Senior citizens on fixed incomes who've had their wages uh, garnished um, because they still owe. And in fact, they owe more now than they took out. A whole generation of millennial and Gen Z who cannot start a home, grow a family or start a business. And of course, black and brown borrowers, black borrowers who have been locked out of every major federal relief program in this country, from uh, the Homestead Act to the GI Bill, targeted by redlining. We are uh, earning more income, but we have not built well. And so black borrowers borrow and default at higher rates. And this executive action uh, would have canceled out to zero for one in four black borrowers um, their debt. Might I also add, uh, since this is the forced birth uh, court, um, they really want women to be in a permanent uh, second class status. Not only have we not enshrined gender equality in our constitution past the ERA, not only have they obstructed the will of the majority of the people in overturning Roe with the Dobbs decision, mm -hmm. but with this decision today, 
uh, to block the uh, re relief, the student debt relief, uh, two thirds of women disproportionately carry this nearly $2 trillion debt here. So this is deeply consequential. Um, I have been in ongoing uh, conversation with the White House for the last uh, two years to make plain the face of these borrowers. Uh, and you heard today the president speak directly uh, to the borrowers. Uh, this movement has made plain the stakes. And might I also add uh, that uh, it is so critically important that this transformative relief is delivered to the very uh, coalition of voters that delivered this White House. Let me let me play for you. you. You mentioned President Biden. This is what he said today about what he's going to do about the uh, the loans issue. But let's be clear. Some of the same elected Republicans, members of Congress who strongly opposed giving release to students, got hundreds of thousands of dollars themselves in relief, members of Congress, because of the businesses they were able to keep open. Several members of Congress got over a million dollars. All those loans are forgiven. Now, a kid making 60,000 bucks, trying to pay back his bills, asking for $10,000 in relief. Come on. The hypocrisy is stunning. That was actually him talking about the hypocrisy. And to that very point, there is a representative named Ralph Norman who said you can't cancel student loan debt anymore than you cancel a car note. He got 306,520 in PPP loans forgiven. I'm just going to put up the list of the other people from Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, all the way down, who also got millions in some cases of dollars of loan relief. What the president did say, um, Congresswoman, is that they're going to lower the return, the repayment threshold to a maximum of 5% of income and that they're going to go back and find a way to still give this relief. Do you think the White House has an aggressive enough plan to essentially backstop and help people anyway, despite the Supreme Court? First, let me speak plainly to borrowers who are um, distressed right now as they think about what this will mean for their lives uh, every day. Uh, the president has heard you and he spoke directly to you today and I'm going to continue to make plain not only the stakes here, because this is transformative and uh, sorely needed change and relief. It's also widely popular, which is why uh, this political legislating Supreme Court wants to obstruct it. Um, but that the president needs to move in a way that is efficient, effective, and impactful. And so what will be key in this moment is implementation. And that is what I will be closely following. But I, I do, I am encouraged by uh, the fact that Secretary Cardona and the president uh, came out quickly, spoke directly to borrowers, and they are prepared to, to move um, with nimbleness to deliver this meaningful relief. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, thank you very much. Much appreciated. Uh, okay, I want to also now bring in Kelly Robinson. Kelly Robinson, um, let's talk about this this other case, which essentially has said that you cannot just—well, well, the same court, I should say, has said that if a white student wants to get into Harvard, you have to let them in. You can't have anything that even looks like they didn't get in because a black student got in. However, it appears that LGBTQ people are a class that does not have the protection of the court. Um, that's how I read it. I don't know if that's how you read it. That is that is that how you view this ruling? 
Absolutely. It's dangerous and it's devastating. And it's part of a trend that we've seen this week, right? I mean, the court once again has rejected decades of precedent to justify discrimination. You saw it yesterday with affirmative action. We saw it last year with Dobbs and we're seeing it today with through 303 Creative. Now, the thing I do want to say is that we view this case narrowly. That it, that this decision should apply only to original custom goods and services. So yes, it does affirm that if somebody is creating a custom website, they can deny that service to a gay couple. But if they're, if they're offering a template website to the general public, they have to still provide that service to that same gay couple or gay client. And I think that that's really important as we move forward and see how this plays out. But I don't want that narrow definition of what has occurred in this decision to undermine the broader story that we are living in a moment where they are creating more and more opportunities to chip away at our fundamental rights simply based on who we love. Everybody should see this for exactly what it is, a trend and a moment where our opposition is using every means of government to justify hate. But the thing is, I mean, I'm not sure that, I mean, you're reading it narrowly, and I think that is very optimistic. But in this case, there wasn't even actually a harmed person. Uh, the, the woman who had this website company didn't even make wedding websites. The person who allegedly was asking her to make a wedding website, first of all, isn't even gay, is married and says, I don't even know who this, why I'm involved. <laughs> I, I didn't. Have, so, so this was like a theoretical, maybe in the future, I might want to do some art. What is to stop the next person who says, well, you know what? I'm a, I make cakes. I'm a baker because they've already ruled in favor of a cake baker who didn't want to bake a cake for a gay couple. And they say, well, making cake is my art. I'm not going to make it for you. Or they say, my religion says that I don't believe in interracial marriage. So if a couple wants to be married and their one person is black and one is white, can't do that either. I mean, it, I don't see how it's narrow because almost anything can be called art. Absolutely. And I think we're going to see further further litigation on this as it plays out. But I think it's important that we read the, 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 the decision for what it is as a narrow one that applies to custom and original products. And I also want to kind of lean into the Bostock decision, which has gone a long way in affirming that there are non-discrimination protections in areas of law like housing, employment, and credit that are critically important to maintain. Um, and I think, you know, again, it's about the bigger picture. They have opened a Pandora's box here of ways that they can start to people can start to legalize discrimination where they are turn, turning bigotry into a protected class that is fundamentally dangerous in itself and I will say bigotry, but only by one group of protected people, and that is conservative Christians, because I have not seen them even once protect any other religious group. They're just saying right-wing Christians are a protected class, and that's it, as our billionaires uh, and, you know— White conservative Christians. <laughs> I mean, I don't know who else they care about. Kelly Robinson, thank you very much. Still ahead. The far-right group Moms for Liberty faces major pushback on their DeSantis, 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 however you pronounce his name, with critics accusing them of promoting intolerance and inequality in America's schools. Fight the woke, fight the woke, fight the woke. We'll be right back. <laughs> We want education, not indoctrination for our children. I don't believe in um, sexualizing children. I do not believe that other people have the right to decide um, what is sexually appropriate to teach other children. There are many schools that have books with inappropriate pictures um, depicted in them that we would like to see not banned, but removed. 
Not since the Daughters of the Confederacy has there been a conservative women's organization as influential as Moms for Liberty. They're taking the lead in getting books banned all over the country, are directly allied with governor, a noun, a verb, and fight the woke, Ron DeSantis. And they are on a winning streak in red states, taking down popular fiction and LGBTQ-themed graphic novels like it's going out of style. This week, they're taking their act to Philadelphia for their Joyful Warriors National Summit. An interesting way to describe banning reading. And regardless of the fact that they recently received an extremist group designation from the Southern Poverty Law Center, the group's summit is being graced by the presence of all the leading Republican presidential candidates. And joining me now is Don Calloway, Democratic strategist and founder of the National Voter Protection Action Fund, and Simon Rosenberg, Democratic strategist and president of the New Democrat Network Think Tank. Thank you both for being here. Don, I'm going to start with you, because I would think that for Democratic strategists and Democratic campaigns, it's kind of a goldmine uh, that all of these wannabe presidents are speaking before a group that's been directly associated with the Proud Boys. It is, but you have to remember a couple of things. First of all, only you and I and Simon understand what a uh, terrorist designation from the Southern Poverty Law Center actually means, right? So there's nobody on the Republican or even in the middle side of the American political spectrum who is thinking about that as a real red flag and understands that this means these are people who are really on the wrong side of history and probably a present danger to their fellow Americans, right? But I think that when you look at this politically, Of course, Democrats are going to have to find a way to message around this, but it is very dangerous because if you look at the demographic and the archetype of those women, that is a demographic that the Democratic Party has tried to court along a tightrope for years now. We're talking about suburban white moms, some working, some not, but they're very difficult to attack, right? And so the Republican think tank and the major funders who are behind Moms for Liberty and these mama bears and all that and have been at it for 15 years now and now it's bubbling to the surface, those people know that. And they are putting these kind of docile, just you know, American pie women up to put Democrats in extremely difficult political position to try to rebut that. But if you take away the visuals and just listen to what they're saying, the crazy is still there, right? So it makes for perfect video ads because the crazy yeah. is still there if we're willing to oh. get away from what they look and sound like. Oh, it was in some of the eyes. <laughs> in that video, I was watching, I was like, ooh. Uh, Simon, I mean, then, then how do Democrats deal with that? Because, right, Republicans are good at naming things. Moms for Liberty, that sounds benign. But what they're doing, you know, the polling, I presume, is extremely unpopular banning books. It is. And I think we should lean into this debate and not shy away from it at all. I mean, I think that if we can't win a big debate with Republicans over book banning, I think we don't deserve to win the next election. Right. I mean, this is something, you know, we can't run away from all these culture war issues. We have to run into them. Right. We can't run away from them. And we've got to contest their arguments and show them to be for what, as my colleague just said. Right. The crazy is still there and we've got to expose it. And I think this week in general, Joy, was a really important reminder of the basic structure of our politics now. Joe Biden's been a good president. We got great economic numbers. We saw Putin stumble in Ukraine. We've seen better numbers on the border. There continues to be lots of positive news and evidence of his success as a president. And they continue to remind us who they are, that they are too extreme. They've been overtaken by extremism and extremists. And that fundamental contrast between us getting the job done and them being a little bit too crazy is the fundamental contrast we have to continue to establish in this election. 
Well, well, let me stay with you for just a moment, because the, the numbers are very concrete. The economy is doing a lot better. Um, you're seeing annual inflation falling to its lowest rate since 2021. Payrolls rose 339,000 yeah. in May. Jobless claims, 20-month drop. The economy showing stamina. You can go on and on. Inflation down. Unemployment rate is very low. And yet... President Biden's approval ratings are still yeah. underwater and the uh, disapproval on the economy. Can you explain this to me? Why would people have such a high <laughs> disapproval rating for the economy when the economy is uh, objectively good? Well, he's got to go make his case. I mean, these numbers are not, we can't be satisfied with these numbers. And I will say in his approval rating, right, we're about at the same place as we were in the elections in 2022 when we did so well in the battlegrounds. And so sure. we're not in a dangerous place, but we need to be in a better place. And I think particularly on the economy, this is the big narrative job for Democrats this year. We've got to get into a better place on economic issues. The president made it very yeah. clear they're going to launch a major campaign to do that now. We need to, as Democrats, we need to amplify these important messages because we know from polling that when people are informed about what he's done, his numbers go up. And we've got to go right. make that help him make that case in the months to come. And Don, you know, people's misery index is usually very personal. It's that my rent is too high. I don't love my job or I ha don't have a job that pays me enough. And that does get sort of translated onto disapproval of the president, I, I presume. So how do Democrats do that messaging in that condition, especially when people are terrified of losing all their rights to, at the hands of the Supreme Court? Yeah, I think that this is the first time in my lifetime that we have, we as Democrats have a legitimate opportunity to message the Supreme Court to black voters, particularly educated and middle-class black voters. You know, historically, I don't want to simplify black voters into a monolith, but for the last 25 years, it's been about economic opportunity, racial justice, police brutality, and criminal justice, right? But, and, and you know, I have seen Supreme Court and SCOTUS issues poll well among other demographics that are likely to yeah. vote Democratic, but this is the first time Effectively, yesterday, the Supreme Court gave African-American voters what they gave liberal women voters last year, which is a reason to get out. That's right. Democrats have yeah. got to get behind messaging that because it's new and it potentially resonates for the first time. And, you know, you have thrown our not, we know how we feel about the social implications of the affirmative action. But when you couple sure. that with the idea of Republicans concocting a case and controversy right in the gay yeah. marriage stuff. And you a concocting of a matter that didn't exist. Yeah. And you couple that with the idea of the litigation that this will cause on deciding what colleges use, use race. This is an extremist yeah. Supreme Court. That can be message to black voters. Indeed. Everybody, um, you know, everybody black knows what Clarence Thomas is. They, they get that real quick. Uh, Don Calloway <laughs> and Simon Rosenberg, thank you both very much. Don't go anywhere. Oh, boy, we got Fab Five Freddy and KRS-One coming in to help me celebrate Black Music Month and the 50th anniversary of hip hop. Don't go anywhere. To say this has been a challenging week for a majority of Americans is a huge understatement. While the Supreme Court is trying to take us back to the 1950s, they cannot undo everything. In an attempt to take back the narrative, we want to celebrate and uplift the culture. Lucky for us, August marks the 50th anniversary of hip hop, which was born from two turntables and a microphone at a back to school party in the Boogie Down Bronx back in 1973. Ever since then, hip hop, like jazz, has become one of America's most important and celebrated art forms and given voice to the voiceless. It introduced a new, uniquely American and uniquely black art form and challenged social norms by taking on ideas like racial inequality, police brutality and gender roles.
Hip-hop has become an economic juggernaut, as our friends at Nightly News pointed out back in 1990. Music has power, all right. The advertising industry is betting rap music has selling power. NBC's Deborah Roberts reports. In the city, ladies were pretty. For years, rap music with its raw, tough edge was a sound heard mainly on the streets where it was born. Then it moved to MTV. Hammer time! But now move over, gentle jingle. Rap is ripping through commercial land, selling everything from soft drinks to sneakers. Oh my God, hip hop has documented in real time the stories of marginalized communities and stands as a reminder that freedom of expression is one thing the right and even the Supreme Court cannot take from us. Joining me now are two giants of hip hop, Fab Five Freddy and KRS-One. Thank you both for being here. Um, I was just laughing at that because watching the Today Show attempt to explain hip hop was one of the funniest things that I think I hadn't seen that clip before and I found that very hilarious. <laughs> Very hilarious. And the choices they made. Lord Jesus. Uh, I got to go to you first, Fab, my friend. Um, you are, were part, are part of building this hip hop museum, which I cannot wait till it's open and I can go and see it. But can you just sort of give us your sense, having been around from day one, kind of what what has hip hop meant to black music and to America? You know, it's amazing, Joy. You know, I'm home in Harlem right now. And I, I think about this often, the fact that hip hop came right off of these New York streets at a time when New York was depressed, economically, you know, on the ground, on its back. And then we just took just two turntables, a microphone, you know, the B-boys and B-girls started dancing. Graffiti artists made incredible images. And we wanted to control that narrative. That was key for me and the things that I've done. I also was Honored and proud to get to direct KRS-One's first music video, My Philosophy. One of the people that came into this game with strong messages and a strong vibe and informed and educated so many of us. So it's really been an honor to, to see this thing that was born and bred right here in these New York streets become this global juggernaut that still rocks the house to this day. Yeah. And uh, KRS-One, it's just an honor just to talk to you, my brother. Uh, I want to ask you the same question. Like, what has hip hop meant? Because the thing is, it has now become very commercial. It is now huge. It's one of the biggest businesses on the planet. Um, do you think that it still has the same messaging power? Because back, you know, when you were doing it, it really was, in a way, it was our CNN. Um, but do you think it has retained that power? And what do you think hip hop means to the world? Well, actually, you don't have an hour for that one. Uh, <laughs> but but I, I, I tell you, first of all, shout out Fat Five Freddy. Big up to you, Fred. Yes. What's, what's going on? Um, yes, uh, well, first you, of all, you know, keep in mind that business is never going to be bigger than the culture. The business, and, and I should just say capitalism itself, gets its resources from culture itself. So no matter how big the business is, the culture is bigger. Uh, in, in, in that sense, now move over to the idea of performing arts. Yes, we are selling a, a, a huge amount of, of records. We're also streaming, you know, all this type of stuff. 
But keep in mind also that breaking, emceeing, graffiti art, DJing, beatboxing are also the most performed arts in the world as well. This is what points mm -hmm. to culture. And so mm -hmm. I just say that, you know, as a surface answer, the, the business is never going to be bigger than the culture. How, and, and keep this in mind. As big as the business is, always remember, the culture is bigger. So yeah. with all the success we're having in business, just imagine what's really going on on the street level in the world today in regards to hip-hop. Our 50th year, our, our semi-centennial is, is crazy right now, how the world is celebrating what's going on. Shout out to 1520, Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx. That's where it's yeah. starting. And I mean, there has Absolutely. been a big debate whether I know the Bronx started it, but, you know, I'm from Brooklyn originally. The Queens was always in the house. Queensbridge, we know the bridge is over. You know, we know that there's always been a debate. Each of you, I'm going to give you a real quick pop quiz. Where, where do you think the real home of hip hop is? First, start with you, Kara's one. Where's the real home of hip hop? Is it Queens? Is it the Bronx? Officially, the real home of hip hop is 1520 Cedric Avenue in the Bronx. That's what the we started. Cool DJ Hurt. And his sister, yes. Cindy, started the party right there. And so we took it yes. out to 1600 Park, then down to Cedar Park. I'll cut it off. Fab, you that's agree. Right. I, I take you agree. I see the amen. <laughs> yeah. KRS-One is 100% accurate. But what a lot of people don't know about, because these guys didn't make records, there was a mobile street DJ scene, disco DJs, that were what led to Cool Herc. These were, you know, guys that were in all of the boroughs, Queens, Brooklyn, and Manhattan. Yeah. But the guys in the Bronx put a put a remix on it and, and did something unique and much needed that we could all take part in. Amen. Well, I'm keeping both of these uh, great brothers, these legends, with me for just a hot minute. Just a little bit after the break, we're going to play Who on the Week. Stay there. We made it to the end of another week, which means it's time to play our favorite game, Who Won the Week? Back with me, two legends, Fab Five Freddy and KRS-One. KRS-One, my brother, Who Won the Week? Mayor Ross J. Barack of Newark, New Jersey, won the week. Mm. The city of Newark mm. is on the rise, and the crime yes. rate is going way down. It's amazing. Amen, amen, amen. Fab, Who Won the Week? I'm going to I'm going to give the week to Youssef Salam, the young brother that was wrongfully convicted. One of the Central Park five has now won the primary for a Harlem City Council seat. I'm so amazed. He encapsulates the story of so many black Americans. Yeah, um, this is amazing story, inspirational. And I'm voting for this brother right here. I love that. And uh, that was the, we did not plan this, but we have an interview with him next week. I cannot wait uh, for that. So thank wow. you. Fab Five Freddy Karras won. Who won the week? In my view, old school hip hop. I could not have y'all on and not say old school hip hop won. Uh, we're going to have Missy Elliott. You're going to have uh, old school hip hop is going to be representing this weekend at Essence Fest. I wish I was there, but I'm just going to be there in spirit. Uh, that is tonight's readout. 